You've painted up your lips and rolled and curled your tinted hair Ruby, are you contemplating going out somewhere? The shadow on the wall tells me the sun is going down One day I left the office there in Nashville. I lived in Donaldson, Tennessee, and I was stuck in the traffic. And they had a, a wreck or something, and I was stuck there. And I had my radio on, and Johnny Cash was singing, Don't take your guns to town, son, leave your guns at home. And I said, Ruby, don't take your love to town. And it was about the Korean War. And it was about uh, a man that I knew, and he had some problems, and, and they lived near us. Him and his wife lived near us in Pahokee, Florida. And uh, I just remembered all that and put it all together. And Johnny Cash said, you wrote a good song, son. That's music legend Mel Tillis talking about the most famous of his many hits, Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Town, which we just heard performed by Kenny Rogers. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. The word legend is thrown around a lot, but most everyone agrees that's an accurate description of singer-songwriter Mel Tillis. Mel's recorded more than 60 albums and written over 1,000 songs, including some 36 top 10 singles, with nine of them going to number one. Mel also overcame a profound stutter and grew into one of the all-time great performers of any genre. Mel's music is both poetic and down-to-earth, a unique blend of warmth and humor that's matched perfectly by his onstage presence. The list of Mel's awards go on and on, but here's a highlight reel. 1976, Mel was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters International Hall of Fame and named Country Music Association's Entertainer of the Year. 1999, BMI named Mel Tillis the Songwriter of the Decade. 2007, Mel was inducted into the Grand Old Opry, and he was named to the Country Music Hall of Fame. To that list of honors, Mel Tillis can add one more. Earlier this year, he received the highest award given to artists by the United States government, the National Medal of Arts. And in a happy coincidence, Mel Tillis received this news from an old acquaintance, the chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, Rocco Landisman. I was at my home at my ranch in Florida. I got a call. I said, Mel, this is Rocco. I hadn't seen Rocco since my daughter Pam did a play uh, off-Broadway, but I remembered him. I said, what's happening, Rocco? He said, you won a, a medal. I said, what kind of medal? I, I didn't know there's any more I could win because I won just about everything there is out there, and I'm so thankful and honored. But he told me, he said, the National Medal of the Arts. I said, Lord, have mercy. Was your family musical? Yes, on my mother's side. You know, she had seven sisters, and most of those could play piano or fiddle the guitar and stuff. And, and we would have our little family reunions uh, back in the in early days, in the, in the late 30s, as I remember, in the early 40s and, or mid-40s. And they'd all, you know, break out the fiddles and guitars, piano stuff. We'd all sing, just have a big time. On the Tillis side, the, 
uh, they're all sticking the mud. They was strictly business. <laughs> well, you have a real business sense too, so you managed to put them both together very nicely. Yeah. <laughs> now, when did you start playing the guitar? I was about, I guess, thirteen or fourteen, and my brother ordered a guitar from from one of the catalogs. I think it was a Silvertone, and he would not let me touch it. And he tried to play it, and he tried oh, about six weeks, and he came to me one day. He said, you want to buy my guitar? And I said, why? He said, I can't figure nothing out on it. I said, how much you want for it? And he paid $15, but he wanted $25. Woo. So uh, I went to work. I mowed lawns. I babysat. I sold earthworms. I would dig them up, and I would sell them to the fishermen. And I swept out the drugstore, Chandler's drugstore there in Pahokee, Florida, where I grew up. And I did all kind of things to make that money, and I finally made it. And had a book in in the case that showed you the chords, but he still couldn't play it. Oh, about a month after that, I was playing the guitar real slow, and I changed chords. I do old Gene Autry songs. I'm riding down the canyon, riding down the canyon, and I changed chords, and I'm riding down the canyon, 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 canyon. <laughs> and finally, I learned how to put them all together, and... Uh, and I became a very, very sociable in school. <laughs> That's what I was, well, was going to ask. Oh, I was asked to all, all the parties to come and play and sing. Who were some of your early musical influences? Oh, boy, in the early years, I guess some of the first ones that I heard was uh, Bob Wills. He was a big uh, Western swing band leader, and I liked his music. And then uh, we got a radio, an old majestic radio and, and Philco battery. And we would tune in Saturday nights and listen to the Grand Ole Opry. And I'd hear uh, Roy Acuff, Eddie Arnold, Bill Monroe, Minnie Pearl, and all those great acts. Man, I said, that's the greatest thing in the world. And I'd sing some of those songs. I'd learn their songs, and I would sing them, you know, to my family mostly. Or they'd sit and listen in the afternoon. We'd get out on the front porch, and, and I'd sing to them. And I stuttered, you know, so bad, and I couldn't hardly talk at all in those days. But I could sing, and they let me sing all I wanted. And you never stuttered when you sang? No. I've heard that most stutterers can sing. And you're singing, and your creative ability comes from one side of your brain and your speech from another side. That's interesting. I heard Frank Sinatra was one of your idols. When I got older and I got in high school in the 40s, Frank Sinatra was, uh, I guess, one of my favorites, and I imitated it. I entered a talent show, <laughs> and I won. I did some imitations of Frank Sinatra. I did uh, uh, Von Monroe and Frank Sinatra, and I won all the talent shows that, that they put on at the old Prince Theater in Pahokee, Florida, and I won most of those, I think, three or four years in a row. And later on, I, I got to meet Frank Sinatra. I recorded an album with his daughter, Nancy, and I filled in for him at Lake Tahoe at Harris. He had to do something, and he asked me to, to come in and fill in for him, and I did. I was there for two weeks, and I got to meet him there. And I got so much television exposure. I did 28 Johnny Carson shows. I did every talk show that I think that there was. And I would work in Vegas at the Frontier Hotel. I was there one time for 18 weeks in a row. And up the street from me at uh, Caesars Palace was Frank Sinatra. And he called me up one time, hey, Mel, he said, you want to belt a few? And <laughs> you know, that's uh, New Jersey talk. That ain't redneck talk. 
I said, yeah, I'll come on. He said, come on down. And I did that about, oh, about two or three times a week, you know, while I was out there, we, and we became pretty good buddies. And uh, he was just a great guy. I really loved that man. And a beautiful singer. Oh, my gosh. I mean, nobody can ever touch him. Do you remember your first performance, like the first talent show when you were in front of an audience that wasn't your family and your friends? Yes, my first performance. Let me tell you this. I started the school, and I started so bad, and I didn't know I stuttered because my daddy, he stuttered a little bit, and my brother stuttered a little bit, and I thought, you know, well, that's the way we talk. I started the school at Woodrow Elementary in Plant City, Florida, and I came home that afternoon. I said, Mama, do I stutter? And she said, yes, you do, son. And I said, Mama, they laughed at me in school. And she said, well, if they laugh at you, give them something to laugh about. And I went back to school the next day, and that was my first day in showbiz. <laughs> and my teachers realized that I could sing, and I'd sing old Gene Autry songs. I want to drink my coffee from an old tin can while the moon goes rising high. I'd do that and, and riding down the canyon. And she took me to all the other classes, one through six, and let me sing to those folks. It just amazed her that I could sing and I couldn't talk. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that was my first day. But yes, uh, I finished high school, and I attended University of Florida for a while, and I was going to get drafted. And I quit and joined the Air Force, and they sent me to Okinawa, and I was a baker in the Air Force. I served my country as a baker. You're on 24 hours and off 48, so I had a lot of time off, and I joined a little band over there called ourselves the Westerners, and there wasn't one of us from the West. <laughs> but I learned to work with the band in those days, and I learned some more chords on the guitar, and I, I learned how to front a band. Oh, and we worked all the NCO clubs, the Officers Club, the Airmen's Club, and the Marines Club all over the island of Okinawa, and those were my first paying audience. Did you like being on the stage? I loved it. I loved it. It gave me uh, a chance to do, you know, what I love, to sing and entertain and make people laugh. Humor has been a big, big part of my life. Uh, when I went to Nashville, uh, Miss Minnie Pearl was putting together a little band uh, to go out and do some fair dates in the Midwest, and she hired me to play a rhythm guitar and sing. And she said she needed a fiddle player, and I said, well, I, I met one today, and he had came to town about the same time that I did, and had got a job at the Andrew Jackson Hotel. And I met him at a little coffee shop where all, everybody hung around in 1957. And she said, you know where he is? I said, yeah, I think I can find him. So I went down to the coffee shop, and there he was. And I, I said, you said you could play a fiddle? He said, I can. I said, are you any good? He said, yeah, pretty good. I said, you want a job? And he said, with who? I said, Minnie Pearl. He said, how much does it pay? I said, $36 a show. If we do two shows, it pays a double. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to give him my two-minute notice. <laughs> and his name was Roger Miller. <laughs> Roger Miller, and, king of the road? Yes, and we went out, out with Miss Minnie for four months on the road, all through the Midwest and all kind of fair dates and stuff like that. And I stuttered in those days really, really bad. Uh, and Roger would introduce my song. When it was my turn to sing, he'd introduce, well, here's Melvin Tillis. They called me Melvin in those days. Here's Melvin Tillis was his new record, and I'd sing the song, and, and after I'd finished, Roger would step in and say, uh, Melvin, thanks you. <laughs> Miss Minnie, she noticed that, and she called me to one side one day, and she said, Melvin, she said, if you're going to be in our business, you need to introduce your own songs. 
and you need to thank them after you finish your song, and then you need to sign autographs. And I said, Miss Minnie, I can't do that. I said, they'll laugh at me. You know, it took me a little while to get all that out. And she said, no, they won't, Melvin. She said, they'll laugh with you. And from that day on, I started, you know, talking a little bit on stage. And before too long, I was doing, I was on the Johnny Carson show. <laughs> so it just all, all went from there, exploded. I did all the shows. I did 13 movies. And when I started, you know, talking, it, people said, let's give them a chance. And, and they did. Okay, so it was 1957 when you went to Nashville. First time I went there at 50, you know, 56 and looked around, and I, I moved up there. I, I wrote a song called Honky Tonk Song. Well, the first one was I'm Tired, Oh Lord, I'm Tired, and it went number, I think, the number three for Webb Pearson and, and the Billboard chart. Oh Lord, I'm tired, tired of living this old way. Looking for your face in every crowd I see Checking every honky-tonk in this town Trying to find the places that you hang around Oh, Lord, I'm tired Tired of living this old way And the next one was a honky-tonk song, which I recorded. I got on Columbia Records and I recorded it. Well, Webb Pierce covered me on on Honky Tonk Song, and he had the big hit, and he just killed my record, which is okay, but I still made a, uh, some money out of it, and I moved to Nashville in 1957. And Webb signed you to his company, Cedarwood Publishing. Yes. I was mainly a writer there for about the first 10 years. I had I had some songs in the charts. I had The Violet and the Rose was a pretty good record for me. It went, up, I think, up to about 17. And I began to have a few hits there, but I was mainly a writer in the beginning. I wrote a lot of hit songs, and, and I was blessed with that, with that talent that I didn't even know I had. You know, I wrote Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Town, uh, a Detroit City, a big, big hit for uh, Bobby Bear. Tom Jones recorded, and Dean Martin, everybody recorded. So I was mainly known my first 10 years as a songwriter. Now, when did you start writing songs, Mel? Uh, when I went to Nashville the first time, I got out of the Air Force and I went uh, back to Florida and got a job with the railroad as a fireman. And I would uh, go to Nashville, you know, free of charge. And in those days, there was only three publishing companies in town. Acuff Rose, the largest, had been in the business for 14 years. And Acuff Rose, Western Rose, he said, he said, man, we don't need any stuttering singers. <laughs> he said, he said, but they don't make a record that big. And I said, well, what do you need? He said, we need copyrights. And I said, you need what? He said, songs. So I started, you know, writing songs. And uh turns out that I had that talent or that uh, whatever it is to come up with some good songs. And I quit the railroad and moved to Nashville, not to 57. I tried to find out about how many songs you've written, and I gave up. <laughs> do you know? No, I still find a few in my sock drawer every now and then. <laughs> 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 did you find that you write better when you were on the road, or did you write better when you were at home, or it just didn't matter? Songs just came to you. It just didn't matter. And there were gifts. I'm sure there were gifts because I'm not that smart. Patsy Cline recorded some of your songs, too, and you traveled with her. That must have been some experience. Right. In the early years, they had a package shows in those days, and there would be four or five different acts on one venue. On this particular 
a venue. I drove the car and did let me sing a couple of songs on the show. I drove for Patsy Klein and for Brenda Lee and her mother. But I got to know uh, Patsy real well and, and little Brenda Lee. I wrote one of her big hits called Emotions. It was a pop hit for little Brenda. But I knew all those guys and gals, and they're just wonderful folks. And, you know, I still can't get over Patsy. Mel, you were in Nashville. You arrived there. You were really there in the golden age. It just strikes me that it would be so much fun for all of you guys to be there together. Oh, it was just a wonderful time. In the early years, you know, it was a whole lot different. It was more regal and stately, the Grand Ole Opry in those days. Everybody was addressed to the nines. You know, some folks like Webb Pierce and Hank Snow was in the rhinestone suits, and others like Roy Acuff was, was just in regular suits in his band, and Bill Monroe. It was just a wonderful, wonderful. If you come up to the, the back door of the Grand Ole Opry and you had holes in your jeans, you wasn't getting in. <laughs> A whole lot more class back in those days. I'm not knocking the new folks these days. It's their time. I had my time. But Mm -hmm. in those times, it was just absolutely wonderful. And it just made you want to look good for the folks out there at least look as good as they are or better. 1965 comes along, and you really begin to get hits. You had six number one hits on Billboard. I don't know if I did or not. I wasn't counting them, but I know I had some. <laughs> you had a lot. I was counting. Because <laughs> I was so busy. I was really busy. I I had to buy me a King Air airplane to go and honor my commitments that I had. Back and forth to L.A. on the TV shows, the movies, and I got so busy. I, every now and then I'd come in and do an album. I had 36 top tens, I think about eight or nine uh, number ones over the years. Including the great Coca-Cola Cowboy. Coca-Cola Cowboy. Yeah, Clint Eastwood gave me that song. I did a movie with him called Every Which Way But Loose. And he wanted me to sing two songs in a soundtrack album. And I heard them both. I said, I don't I don't like either one of them. He said, but you can't be in the movie and I'll beat you up. <laughs> so I said, ho, ho, ho. So I recorded them and both of them went number one, a Coca-Cola Cowboy and Send Me Down to Tucson. <laughs> How did you start with movies? What was your first movie, and how did that happen? <laughs> I did a movie one time, my first one, and it never made the hard tops. It was uh, strictly drive-ins. It was called Cotton Picking Chicken Pickers. And then uh, uh, Burt Reynolds, he came to Nashville, and I did about, oh, about four or five uh, movies with Burt. He's from West Palm Beach, from Palm Beach County, where I'm from. And I'm from Pahokee, and he's over on the beach there in Jupiter. And he always called me Pahokee Trash. <laughs> but he must have felt sorry for me because he put me in about five or six of his movies. Now, you also started doing comedy. You cut a comedy record. What's the story behind You Ain't Gonna Believe This? Well, you know, I do my show. I do a little humor. People want to hear me talk. Not too long ago, I was in the autograph line, uh, I think somewhere up in Minnesota, and a man come by and says, I'll come to hear you stutter. You didn't stutter a damn bit. I said, I'm trying to quit. <laughs> I tell little stories, you know. My stories are 85% true. <laughs> yeah, I help them out a, a little bit if they need it. But I tell little anecdotes, and they're funny, and, and I got people laughing, and that's the best medicine in the world for them and the best feeling in the world for me. You know, make them laugh and make them cry, send them home and give them something to think about. 
We have to give a shout-out to your band, the Statesiders. Uh, the Statesiders band has, uh, has been with me all these years, and I love them to death. And I wouldn't be what I, I do on stage without them because they're just the best. You built a theater in Branson, Missouri. Why Branson? And why a theater? Well, back about 20 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, you know, things began to change in Nashville. You know, the new acts were coming in, you know, it, it was change. It was time for a change. And we'd been around so long, you know, and I, our music was getting a little stale, and, and the new kids were coming in, and the, uh, their music was a little bit different from ours. Their, their syntax was different. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I said, well, I'm going to do something. I'm going to get out of town for a while. So I went to, to Branson. I don't know. I was about the third or fourth one out there to build a theater. And it was uh, very, very profitable. I sold my theater about about eight years ago. I bought me a ranch in Florida. So I'm back in Florida. So I was out there, and I still go out there and do shows. still do about 80 shows a year. And I do all kind of things these days. I'm, yeah, I'm doing some speaking uh, engagements. I did one. Uh, in Dothan, Alabama, at the Peanut Festival. <laughs> I'd never done it before, you know, and I got a call from them from, at the Peanut Festival, folks, the first one that I did. No, the second one I did. And uh, and I said, well, you know, I don't know about this. I said, I'm, you know, I'm not a speaker, as you know. And I said, how long do I have to talk? And they said, about 20 minutes. I said, mm -hmm. Hell, I can't say hello in 20. <laughs> and they said, well, you can do anything you want to, as long as you want. I said, how much does it pay? And they told me. And I said, when do you want me to be there? And they told me. And I had my, uh, my sound man and my band leader to put together a nine-minute video of my career. And I had two big screens on the side of uh, the podium, and they played uh, nine minutes of the video. And, and they said, and now here's Mel Tillis. And I walked out there and did, uh, did 59 minutes. And they liked it so well, they asked me to uh, stay over for another day. And I did. But I did, and I really enjoyed that. And, and I did one at the University of Florida. Uh, I did about an hour and a half with their speech students. Uh, there was going to be uh, a speech therapist. I'm really enjoying that. It uh, gives me another platform, another stage. And I'm doing art. If you get on my website, you can see some of my art and I'm selling my paintings. I just finished my first novel. Uh, it's called Acting Sheriff. It takes place in Palm Beach County in 1947. Ooh. And it's a, it's a funny, funny thing. A real sheriff has to go in, in the hospital for a hemorrhoid operation. <laughs> and he appoints <laughs> one of his sergeants as acting sheriff, and all hell breaks loose. I've got about 300 pages of it. it and I'm writing that under another name. Pilgrim Williams is my new name. Pilgrim Williams. Pilgrim Williams. I thought that had a pretty good ring to it. You know, someone asked old Mark Twain one time. They said, Mr. Twain, how do you do it? What's your schedule? How do you, how do, you do it? He said, well, I get up in the morning sometime about 4 o'clock or 4.30. I put on some coffee, light a cigar, and I just start lying. <laughs> I said, well, hell, I can do that. So that's what I've done with this one. Acting Sheriff, you'll be looking for it. I will be looking for it. It's a laugh a minute. In 1998, you were the honorary chairman as well as the spokesperson for the National Stuttering Foundation. You've really devoted a lot of time to this. Oh, yeah, you know, and it had my picture in the magazines on all the airlines and everything. Uh, they're good people. 
One time I was in Minnesota, and it was called Midday Minnesota, and they had about 50 kids from this school for stutterers. And I didn't know that. And I was being interviewed, and I got to stutterings, and I got to telling stories, and they'd laugh. <laughs> I said, what are they laughing about? No, 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 no. They couldn't hear. And they had a lady there doing them fingers, you know. Every time I stuttered, boy, them fingers go flying. And they were just laughing. I thought that was the grandest thing in the world, that I entertained those kids and they couldn't hear, but uh, they knew I couldn't talk either, so I, (laughs) I was part of them. Now, you were inducted into the Grand Ole Opry and into the Country Hall of Fame in the same year. Yeah, boy, wasn't that something? Pretty good year. Yeah. You know, I could have been in in the Grand Ole Opry years ago, but I didn't have the—I was so busy, I didn't have the time to commit. You had to be on there, you know, so many times a year, mm-hmm. and I couldn't do it. So uh, when I slowed down a little bit, you know, they, they asked me to be on, and I was so proud. And my daughter was already on there. Pam was already on the show, and uh, she introduced me for the first time. That must have been a very special thrill. Oh, my God, yes. Is it still a thrill when you get out on the stage of the Grand Old Opry? Is it oh, one of yes. those places? Especially, well, yes, especially the old Grand Old Opry, the Ryman Auditorium. You know, the Ryman is a, is a mother church, we call it. And the, and the other one, the Opry, Opryland Hotel, Motel. I don't even know what they call it. But anyway, it's a new one, and it's nice. I love to do the Opry. It's just a good feeling when you step out on that old stage where Roy Acuff and Bill Monroe, and you play their music, and cousin Minnie Pearl. You've accomplished so very much, Mel. Is there any one thing you're particularly proud of? I'm proud of the opportunity to be able to compete and open the door. And I, I guess the stutter op- opened the door for me because uh, yeah, I remember when I, I started writing uh, songs and uh, Mr. Denny uh, Webb Pierce owned the company, Cedarwood Puppets Company, and Jim Denny was also head of the Grand Ole Opry. So he would give me a pass to go backstage at the Grand Ole Opry, and I started real bad in those days. And, and somebody found out that, that I did, and I was invited to come into their dressing room. And they wanted to hear me talk, and I suppose for a laugh. Well, hell, I, get, I did. I gave them something to laugh about. And I, I became well-liked, and I... I'd sing them a song without stuttering, and then, who wrote that song? I said, I did. And I got a lot of songs recorded like that. So, but I didn't use that stutter. The stutter didn't help me write songs. Anyway, here I am. You found out about receiving the National Medal of Arts from NEA Chair Rocco Landisman. Tell me a little more about that conversation. Boy, let me tell you, I mean, that was out of a clear blue sky. I had no idea. And I was at my home in Florida. I live in, and uh, I got a uh, call, and they said that I was going to be in the National Medal of the Arts. And my gosh, I said, are you kidding me? I said, who all's in it? And he told me. <laughs> and he said, come on up. We're going to have a, a black tie dinner uh, the night before. And uh, I got to meet the old, uh, uh, what's his name, the Godfather guy. Al Pacino. Al Pacino, I hung around with him, you know. He's real Brooklyn, you know, and I'm, I'm redneck. <laughs> he just laughed at my talk, the way I talked. <laughs> but anyway, I'm so thrilled and I'm honored to be in such a great company as Roy Acuff, Eddie Arnold, and Minnie Pearl, and Ray Charles. Boy, you can go on and on. Well, Mel, let me again add my congratulations. 
it's an honor that is so well-deserved. And thank you for taking the time to come into the studio and talk to me. Well, Joe, I thank you so much for inviting us. Well, it really has been a blue, blue day, and the water looks cold in the East River Bay. The water looks cold in the East River Bay. That was country singer, songwriter, and National Medal of Arts recipient, Mel Tillis. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from I'm Tired and Brooklyn Bridge, from the album The Best of Mel Tillis, performed by Mel Tillis and used courtesy of Sony Music Entertainment. Excerpt from Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Town, performed by Kenny Rogers, from the album Kenny Rogers, 49, All-Time Great, used courtesy of Cleopatra Records. All songs written by Mel Tillis and used by permission of Universal Music Publishing Group. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, American folk icon Pete Seeger. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog. Or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.